You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Klingon Blood Wine, Canar, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion for free. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 481, False Prophets. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart an episode of Star Trek, looking deeply into what the sacred poems say about the sages who visit us with their wisdom and if their stories hold up to the test of time. This week, False Prophets, the one where a couple of lost Ferengi get found again but it looks like they've been making up for lost time by exploiting everyone around them for profit. So what else is new? Look, I'll be back with trivia, but first Norm is going to tell you how to reach all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. But before we get into John's trivia, here is Star Trek Wines, our sponsor for this week. Yes, Star Trek Wines. So it's kind of uh, on everybody's mind right now, I would say, Norman, because we're in it with Star Trek Picard Season 3. And what better to sip along with uh, your viewing of that season than some actual Chateau Picard. And when I say actual Chateau Picard, I don't just mean that the bottles are the same ones that you see on screen. I mean that the wine is from the actual Chateau Picard. That's one of the coolest things about this. It's not just about creating a prop that looks good on your desk or looks good on your wall. It's about having something that you will truly savor and enjoy. And Star Trek wines have gone the extra mile by going to France, going to Chateau Picard, and bottling these wines there. It, it's the perfect combination of real world meets science fiction. I mean, from what we understand, uh, this is the this is the swan song, you know, mm-hmm. for the next generation and for Star Trek and Star Trek Picard. For what we know, we don't really <laughs> know what the future holds. But here's how you want to do it and do it in style. You want to actually have these bottles of wine at your premiere party with you in your hand and and creating that seamless transition between reality and fantasy by pouring yourself something that they're actually using in the show itself. Yeah. 
And you have your choice. You can take a look at, uh, well, you can get all three bottles together, or you can order individually the 2386 vintage. That was the original that we saw when Star Trek Picard kicked off with season one. You have uh, the 2401 special silver label edition, which is gorgeous with that black wax drip top. And then you also have, if you were paying close attention during Strange New Worlds, the 2221 edition. So you can get those individually, or you can order as a three-pack. And again, those are bottled at the actual Chateau Picard in France. So uh, enjoy it while you watch Picard. Please visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Klingon Blood Wine, Canar, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion for free. And now here's John Champion with this week's profits. I mean... Trivia. All right. Trivia. Trivia for this week's episode, False Prophets. We have a story by George Brozak, not a new name to us, but you'll need to go all the way back to mission log number 359, where we covered the DS9 episode Broken Link at the end of the fourth season. George got the story credit there, as he does here, but he missed getting a credit for his other contribution on TNG's Birthright Part 1. Those are his only pro-TV credits, and we mentioned the first time that George's professional career is in music, where he is an expert and university leader in marching bands. We have a teleplay by Joe Minoski. Now, obviously, that's a very familiar name for us, and it's worth pointing out that Joe had spent a few years living in France, but by the time this episode was produced, he was living back in the U.S. and working on staff at Voyager. He had been contributing scripts all along, though. The Thaw was the most recent of his that we discussed, and development and writing for False Prophets mostly occurred while he was still living abroad. We will see a lot more of Joe's writing credits as Voyager carries on. This was directed by Cliff Bull, and at this point, we are midway through Cliff's 10 contributions to Voyager. Remember that he had a very long stint on TNG since season one, and he directed seven episodes of DS9. Most recently for us, we covered Cliff's work on the episode Tuvix. Now, it's important to note that this episode is a sequel. If you go back to TNG Season 3, Episode 8, The Price, you may remember that while Troy was being wooed by Devanoni Rao, there was a whole negotiation happening for the rights to the only known stable wormhole. Jordy and Data took a trip through to see what was on the other side, and so did a couple of Ferengi, uh, Arador, and Cole. And while the Enterprise crew made it back, the others did not. Damon Goss got the bad news from Captain Picard that his men were a good 80 years away at high speed, now lost somewhere in the Delta Quadrant. Let's meet our guest stars. We have some returning guest stars here, along with some new faces. Dan Shore played Arador in TNG's The Price, and he returns here in the same role some seven years later. Not that long ago, we covered the Voyager episode Faces, and we pointed out an unnamed Talaxian prisoner played by Rob LaBelle, and Rob is back in this episode without all the heavy makeup playing Kafar. You might remember that Rob is a huge Trek fan, and he's also friends with Ken Biller, which they kept quiet when he originally auditioned. 
Our very own Ethan Phillips appears here, of course, as Neelix, but then he gets to trade in his Talaxian makeup when Neelix shows up in disguise as a Ferengi. Keep in mind, though, that this isn't the first time. He was also a Ferengi on TNG in the third season episode, Menage a Troy. And guess what? He will play a Ferengi again in a few years when we are past Voyager. Reciting poetry throughout, Michael Inson appears in an unnamed role, and it's nice to see a returning guest actor again with far less alien makeup. You can go back to our coverage of TNG First Contact, where he played Minister Krola, and we saw him again in the DS9 episode The Forsaken as the Vulcan Ambassador Lojal. We'll see Michael one more time in an episode of Enterprise. The Sandalmaker is played by Alan Outschuld, who we first met as Pomet, one of the aliens trying to take over the Enterprise in the TNG episode Starship Mine. He has also played a Iridian on TNG, and after this he will be back for one more alien role on Voyager. Then there's the Merchant Businessman, played by somewhat recognizable character actor John Walter Davis. In addition to the usual round of TV guest roles throughout the 80s and 90s, John has a number of feature films on his resume, like Tango and Cash, Altered States, Starman, and the Star Trek staff favorite, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. This is John's only Star Trek appearance. Finally, the Ferengi Cole is played in TNG by an uncredited actor, J.R. Quinones. When it came time to produce this episode of Voyager and Cole expanded into a much larger part, another actor was cast, and that was Leslie Jordan. It is so hard to summarize Leslie's career here since he was a staple in TV guest roles for the better part of 40 years. He started out mostly in commercials and bit parts, but he worked constantly. He had long recurring gigs on Will and Grace, Hearts of Fire, and was very recognizable in Boston Legal. He was born and raised in Tennessee and became an outspoken advocate of the LGBTQ community. In the years of the COVID pandemic, Leslie found a whole new audience with his hilarious and heartwarming social media posts. Tragically, we lost him in a car crash in October 2022. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. What's that? You say you miss the Ferengi? Boy, have we got a deal for you. Prologue. What's that you say? A wormhole? Why, yes, Voyager has detected a wormhole, but it's unstable and keeps showing up in unpredictable places. Fortunately, they're in a system with an inhabited planet where maybe the locals can help with more information. Oddly enough, scans reveal that those people are pre-industrial, and yet they also seem to have been using a standby piece of Alpha Quadrant technology, a replicator. Act 1. While the rest of the crew try to science their way into a solution, Chicote and Tom beam down incognito to try to figure out what the locals know. The short answer is not much. They are first regaled with part of a prophetic poem about two sages who have visited this place. The orator wants to be paid to finish the story, but Chicote and Tom aren't buying. 
They are then hassled by a merchant who has his eye on their shoes and is willing to make trade, some ear-shaped jewelry that will allow them closer to the temple to see the sages. Just so happens, this is where that replicator signal was coming from, so they make the deal. The closer they get to the temple, it's almost time for the holy sages themselves to come out and greet the crowd. When they do, Chakotay and Tom are shocked to find that these holy men are a couple of Ferengi, with a device that they call the Holy Icon, a replicator. Act 2. They stay to watch the action long enough to get the gist. The Ferengi invite a worshiper up to the stage and then ask about why his sandal business is failing, all the while shouting various rules of acquisition. The poor guy is suffering and asks for medicine and food from his family, but the Ferengi use the replicator to produce a cheap version of the rules of acquisition, charge him for it, and then send him on his way. Chakotay and Tom, back on board Voyager, explain what they've seen and how the local Takarians somehow fit the arrival of these Ferengi into their prophetic mythology. These two holy sages who have come to protect them and rule in benevolence. But these misplaced Ferengi arrived with a replicator and turned the local economy upside down, taking all the riches for themselves and keeping the planet's inhabitants servile. How did they get there? The wormhole was won by the Ferengi in a negotiation hosted by the Enterprise seven years ago. They didn't know it at the time, but it's only stable on one side, the Alpha Quadrant. In the Delta Quadrant, it's unpredictable and jumps around. Even Balana and Harry Kim are having trouble luring this end of the wormhole into their presence with Verderon particles, but they're making progress. That gives Captain Janeway an idea. When they leave, they're taking the Ferengi with them and letting the Takarians get back on with their lives of freedom and prosperity. Tuvok warns that the Ferengi aren't members of the Federation and aren't bound by the Prime Directive. But Janeway sees a loophole. The Federation negotiated the wormhole agreement. It's their problem to clean up. On the surface, the two Ferengi, Cole and Arador, argue over lowered profits from one of the regions and call in Kafar, a servant, Carrion, who is responsible for collecting tribute from the area. They berate him, but suddenly are beamed up, giving Kafar the newfound freedom to drink in their luxury and relax for a moment, with the Ferengi not around. In one of Voyager's transporter rooms, Cole and Eridor are shocked to be kidnapped, as they put it. Janeway explains rather bluntly what's going on, though, and Tuvok shows a computer simulation of their plan to get them all back home. Naturally, Eridor objects, noting that taking away the gods of these people will lead the Takarians to ruin. Janeway considers and then asks Tuvok to beam them back to the surface. Act 3. Well, Voyager's crew isn't done yet. They need to think of a way to get the Ferengi to leave on their own by making it less profitable for them to stay. But they need to get them to leave gracefully so that Takarian society doesn't fall apart. Enter the Grand Nagus's proxy. Well, not really. It's Neelix in disguise. And Eridor and Cole are eating it up. The proxy has news for them. The Grand Nagus has heard about their success when Voyager sent a probe through the wormhole, and now he's recalling them back to Ferenginar and claiming all their spoils for himself. 
He gives them 20 minutes to prepare a speech thanking the Takarians and in the meantime takes a few bags of their money, along with Kafar, to start passing it out to the Takarians. While Neelix is gone, Eridor and Cole try and fail to come up with a plan to save their power and profit center, so they resort to one last measure, to kill the Grand Nagus's proxy. When Neelix has passed out the money and returns inside the temple, Eridor and Cole are waiting for him with swords drawn. It doesn't take long before Neelix reveals who he really is, and Eridor sends him away with the warning that Voyager had better stay out of their business. Act 4 Outside the temple, Neelix reconvenes with Tom and Chakotay to let them know the bad news, but they're stopped by the orator who wants to know if Neelix, in his Ferengi garb, is another holy one. He recites more of the Song of the Sages and takes payment in the form of Chakotay's shoes when he asks how the song ends. Three stars appear, a ringing bell, wings of fire, something about a holy pilgrim who will lead them away. The orator then fills in the gap himself, just assuming that Neelix is the holy pilgrim. So, later that night, Neelix walks up to the temple and announces himself as the Holy Pilgrim, and with a little encouragement from Chakotay and Tom, the Takarians are starting to get interested. The moment they've prayed for when the three sages ascend into the dark. The two Ferengi emerge from the temple and, of course, try to expose Neelix as an imposter, but Neelix has an ace up his sleeve with a little assistance from Voyager. Right on cue, Chakotay gives the order and Harry launches three photon bursts to light up the sky. The Takarians are convinced, and Kafar starts to ring the bell. Okay, bang the gong, same idea. Then it's time for the wings of fire part of the prophecy, as the Takarians gather up Arador, Cole, and Neelix, preparing to burn them at the stake. Act 5 before being barbecued, the three, along with Chakotay and Tom, are beamed back to Voyager, saving their lives and essentially fulfilling the prophecy of the Holy Ones ascending in the eyes of the Tikarians. Now Voyager prepares to shoot through the wormhole back to the Alpha Quadrant, but the Ferengi want their loot from the planet. No dice. That will be divided up among the people they swindled it out of in the first place. The only thing the Ferengi get to keep is their shuttle, which Voyager beamed up as well. As preparations are made on the bridge, it's very soon that the Ferengi have knocked out the security escort, stolen their shuttle, and escaped. All attempts to beam them back fail, and the gravitational strength of the wormhole has the opposite of the intended effect by dragging in the shuttle and then moving. Voyager attempts to catch up to the opening, but it's too late. The wormhole is gone, and there's no option other than to resume course to the Alpha Quadrant. And as Voyager leaps to warp, one of the Takarians points to the trail in the sky and says that the Holy Ones are going home. The end. Nicely done, John. I know Thank that you. there's a lot of teching the tech in this. We're going to get to Ooh, teching yeah. some of that tech. There is a lot of tech to be teched here. Yeah. Yes. But for those who are playing the home game... And I, I texted you this before, and I think I got a big laugh from you and a, good, a big laugh from Earl. Yeah. This is episode 47 in production of Voyager. So it is. That, 
Does yes. that cover like all the 47 references? Because there is a 47 reference. There is a 47 reference, and we have Joe Minoski to blame. He is the one who created that meme within mm-hmm. Star Trek, and everybody else kind of latched on to it. Um, so it, it's only fitting that Joe writes episode 47 of Voyager and slips in a 47. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Right. For the home game, check that box. Yep. I never noticed this before. Uh, because of the way that Tuvok and uh, Harry are, are divided, you know, with, you know, with the with the turbo lift in the middle of them, but yeah. they're literally divided as the most emotionally different characters in this series. I, they're left brain, right brain, yeah, literally, yeah. yeah. With Janeway kind of like right in the middle, negotiating kind of like the responses between the two, because you had Harry like, I can't believe we found the wormhole. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Tuvok's like, May I remind you with the Tuvok finger? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. Kind of sided mm-hmm. with him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, getting down to the planet, yeah, uh, of, of which we have much to discuss about the planet. <laughs> sure. I do love like the opening kind of salvo with like one of the the denizens there saying, you can tell a lot about a man by his shoes. Yeah. And then going like into a whole diatribe of shoes. You know, I thought that was uh, neat. Okay. I, I appreciated that as well, but mm-hmm. I am filled with disappointment that we don't actually see the shoes until later. <laughs> like, uh, okay, look, it, it, it's sort of, it's an amateurish filmmaking thing if you, uh, you, you know, if you have the establishing shot, and then you go in a little closer, then you go in for your close-ups when you need them, right? So it's a little mm-hmm. amateurish to, to just, like, immediately cut to the shoes. But we literally don't see them until much later the second time that then, you know, Chakotay is giving up his shoes, probably re-replicated back on Voyager. But, it, like, if I were going to make a big deal out of them, how much better that we see actually see the shoes. that they are yeah. better than the ones that other people have there. <laughs> yeah. This is the one thing that the probe that they sent to study the, the people there, they, it probably mm. didn't give you the right data for the shoes. Right? Uh, there so, you go. There you yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. I love that there are, as we said, there's a lot of teching the tech in this episode. And then when the Harry and Bellana show, they were talking to Janeway about this is what can do to, in, in order to get the wormhole to behave mm-hmm. and maybe we can manipulate it. I love that she just says, is this like a tail wagging the dog thing or is this yes. just a magnet pulling the compass needle thing? Because for me, I'm watching it I'm like, yeah, I get that description more than the teching the tech description. Yeah, of it, I right? totally agree because that's all you need to do is – have somebody just say, yeah, we'll use Veteran particles. Uh, it's like a magnet pulling uh, the, yeah. the, the needle of a compass. Like that, I, I think when they can use stuff like that, all the better. I kept wondering, though, if there's any point where the analogies just aren't understood. Like in the 24th century, how many people have a compass? Or <laughs> does, right. you, you know, or does Bellana right. having grown up half Klingon, like are, are her set of references completely different? You know, mm-hmm. uh, the tail wagging the targ, I guess, is what you'd have to say there. <laughs> That's a great point. You know, there's going to be a point in time where rotary dial phone references aren't going to mm. be relatable anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know, maybe one point in time, microwave oven references yeah. aren't going to be made anymore. You know, so. Isn't that interesting? You still say dial the phone, and yet mm-hmm. you are not dialing it. You are pushing There's buttons. no dial tone. Yeah. <laughs> there's still dial tone. Yeah. Yeah. Or hang up. You don't actually hang up. You You just... And the call. 
Yeah. Or not take the call at all. You just ghost people. Oh, well, that's right. – yeah, so, that, uh, when yeah. in doubt. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but like going back to kind of like old technology, I do like that there is like this interesting, weird kind of burgeoning industrialization on this planet. And obviously there's a weird focus and maybe a fetish on shoes because you have a mm. sandal maker, yep. right? You have a sandal maker pleading his case to the Ferengi. But the reason why I bring this up is because they did a really good job at bringing that whole shorthand for – this is how Ferengi culture works. You have mm. somebody who begs for advice, pays for advice, and begging these people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. They, in a relatively short time, uh, really infected the culture with their own. Yeah. Here's a question, John, for yeah. you and for all of our listeners. So do all stations on Voyager have access to the – here's the plot graphic element of the week – Right, like Tuvok was showing Eridor in the transporter room. Like, oh, by the way, here's our plan, and we're just going to go to the transporter console and show yes. you the plan of the week. So I, I'm glad you <laughs> pointed that out, though. I'm glad because right? that I I kind of had the same thought, and I felt like, well, first of all, it's one of the few times that we've actually used. Uh, you know, a computer in the transporter room to do something else. But in the greater scheme of things, in Star Trek, in theory. All those consoles everywhere could be doing whatever you want that console to do. You could just send the right information to it. So it's kind of cool. Like, we're not going to let you out of the transporter room. Maybe they're on their way to the brig, you know, if anything else. Uh, although, you know, there, there are legal questions about that. Are, does Voyager actually have any jurisdiction? I'm glad Tuvok mm -hmm. brought it up. But – he just kind of brings them around the corner and says, here, we're going to bring up this file to show you this thing. So I thought it was a good use of that that we don't actually get most of the time. Is it Voyager's or the 24th century's version of Handoff? It is. There you go. It is. It is. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Handoff for you Android users <laughs> is the iOS version of all of their – Yeah. All, you know, all of their um, – File sharing, I guess it's what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, yeah. You start one job in one place, pick it up on another device. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love Janeway's reaction to Eridor's explanation of what would happen if she removed them as gods. So there's kind of like this reverse reaction scene that she had where these are these are these like great like Kate Mulgrew moments, these nuances where she looks like she's, damn it. Yeah. I hate yeah. what they've done, but he's not wrong. We're going to come back to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because the damage has kind of already been done. Yeah. All right, John, here's the big, here's the big Grand Nagus, not Grand Nagus in the room. <laughs> Ethan as a Ferengi. Oh, my God. Pardon the pun, but that is freaking gold, Jerry. Gold. <laughs> right? I mean, like, Ethan as a Ferengi is amazing. Uh Post current and then obviously future version of you know his version of a Ferengi, but here's the bigger question. Yeah, these Ferengis like they seem to be pretty smart. Ariadora seems pretty smart. Yeah. So how does he actually even begin to fall for this deception? <laughs> well, I, that's part of the brilliance in uh, I guess in universe. Neelix must have studied a lot of Ferengi culture because it's a relatively short time from when mm. they come up with a plan, presumably send him down to sickbay to get a little plastic surgery to look for Inge. 
And right. then he's down there spouting off rules of acquisition, making things up, covering for himself very well. I guess that's yeah. his whole background uh, as being a, a trader, but kind of a schmoozer in the Delta Quadrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I do, I have to say, I love how these particular Ferengi and so many before them, they just, they immediately play down their success when they're outranked or threatened with someone encroaching on their business. It's like everything is brag and boast, brag and boast until somebody is the higher ranking businessman shows up like, oh, no, it's just, it's very small. It's not that profitable, you know. Like Brunt. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Yep, yeah. And by the way, of course, here's our 47. It's the full edition of the Rules of Acquisition with 47 commentaries. And I forgot the other numbers. We had like 10,000 footnotes or something. That that was was fun. Yeah. I like in the scene where the actor who played Eriador, Mm -hmm. it was a very natural scene where he's looking at his pad or his Ferengi version of a pad. Yeah. And he's like – he's coming up with all these different search – like quotas, you know, and mm-hmm. it's very, it's very natural. It's almost like that's kind of like what somebody would do today. Yeah. You know, if they were oh, like yeah. looking up something, you know, for like a law or a precedent, you know, or some kind of like legal loophole mm-hmm. because he was looking for, okay, let's put these parameters in and then we can fine tune these parameters. Oh, there it is. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, wow, that's, that's oddly very dynamic to today's uh, kind of like use of the internet. Yeah. I thought it was neat. Absolutely. Yeah. Honestly, a bit surprised that Ferengi didn't also want to kill Neelix when they realized who he was. Like, oh, you're from Voyager? Okay, you have no jurisdiction here. We're going to kill you. We're ready to mm-hmm. kill you as an imposter, as uh, as the Grand Agus's proxy. We will definitely kill you as an imposter. But, but they didn't use him as a warning. Okay, I get it. So um, if the audience may indulge me for a moment, mm-hmm. um, as you as well. Tony. Oh, sure. Uh, so when swords show up on any series, it's something that makes my ears kind of perk up and like, oh, a sword. Because uh, I've said this before on the show that um, one of my favorite fandoms is Highlander. And I have spent a lifetime of pouring over catalogs of swords that either I've collected or I can't buy or I shouldn't buy or I have talked myself into buying. <laughs> The swords that um, that the two Ferengi use, yeah. they are known as the Marto series barbarian fantasy swords. I knew them on site. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm going to be wow. that guy. I'm an expert. That's awesome, I am an expert though. on swords. How yeah. cool. But there are, there's an interesting uh, level of production that you see here with swords because swords mm-hmm. are very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Obviously, real swords, real steel swords are very dangerous to actors. But you can see in the fight scene, in this particular scene, where, where Cole and Eriador are swinging their swords at Neelix, at Ethan, Johnny, mm-hmm. where you can see in static shots, they are using hero swords, which are very reflective and very polished. But in the action shots, they are using either aluminum or rubber swords, of which you can actually mm. see them bend and flex as they swing the sword or stab a chair. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. So nice. it's, it's just funny. And also yeah. at timestamp, 30 minutes, 21 seconds, they're pointing their swords at, at Neelix, who's the grand proxy. Yeah. And they actually clipped the tips of those swords to make them look a little bit more alien. And the blade itself is a little bit more kind of staggered and alien looking. But it actually makes swords like less uh, effective because they don't have points and they don't have blades. They just have these very alien looking appearances and silhouettes. Yes, I'm going to say I'm an expert. I love it. I I love it. That's 
that is some great insight. Yeah. That is why we have your expertise. Well done. <laughs> well done. We all learned something here. Neelix learned something here, which is uh, the, he learned the rule. When the order stops and asks him if he is a god, he says yes. That's a general rule. Yeah. That is a general that rule is. about godhood. Um, here's another one about godhood. So mm-hmm. when, when the guy with the eye patch is yeah. trying to sell his story again yeah. you know, to, to Tom and Chakotay, he's wearing it on the other eye. Right. Uh, it reminded me of the whole – Mel Brooks History of the World Part One Moses scene. Uh-huh. He's like, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. This is on this eye. It yeah. should be on this eye. It's like, no, no, no. The, the, the fifteen. Oh, ten. Oh, ten. Come on. Ten Those commandments <laughs> for all to obey. It's very ludicrous. He's uh, pretty great. Know, My, Michael yeah. Inson is awesome, and I, I do love the the back and forth when they're on that kind of stage at the temple. Like this man is a false pilgrim. Uh, I am not a false pilgrim. It's like, it's a, yes, you are. No, I'm not. Like, uh, how how else could that conversation possibly go? <laughs> this is, right. I mean, that that is the only way it could possibly go. Neelix does have some technology on his side, which is cool, but that's literally just the religious argument. Like, he's false. No, I'm not. Uh, okay, <laughs> you, right. you know. And- and if you don't believe me, but you're going to believe me now because I just showed you literal proof of the translation of the song yes. with the technology that I just used. So yes. You can't, yes. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like you can't have it both ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you can. Maybe you know. can. Yeah. Yeah. A line that made me laugh out loud, uh, Neelix almost getting burned, saying, there's another verse. Please don't burn the holy ones. <laughs> that was very nice. <laughs> very nice. I do have to question, are, are we back to like a situation with the Ioceans? Uh, they hmm. left a replicator on that planet. There's a replicator down there. Remember, the only thing that got destroyed was the ion generator that prevented them from beaming in and out. Uh, but there's replicators still there. So – you know, come back in 20 years, and I wonder what they've made use of. That's a great point. Um, maybe we'll see that in another series that we can't talk about for fear of jumping the timeline. Ooh, maybe. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Uh, honestly, uh, as we get to the end of this episode, I didn't know how much teching the tech could possibly be squeezed into the last four minutes of a show to get yeah. the Ferengi to escape and Voyager not go through the wormhole. Yeah. There was a lot. A lot of teching the tech yeah. to like the ad nauseum level of teching <laughs> yeah. the tech. But, yeah. but, but once we teched all that tech, a nice emotional beat, Harry Kim saying there are none when it comes to what their next move would be, what their opportunities would be. It, it was a, a nice quiet moment of disappointment and then resolve on the bridge. That was pretty good. Before I get to that point, because mm-hmm. that, that is really good observation there, I, one of the not-so-great observations that I made, mm-hmm. the special effects of the wormhole getting – or the shell getting sucked into the wormhole and spiraling down, that kind of didn't age so well. But yeah. going I, back to here – like, I've, I've never been that. a fan of those Ferengi ships anyway. And uh, It just, just didn't look good. Yeah, and it didn't look good there. Yeah, it yeah. didn't look good. But, but uh, you're right. What about Harry? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, it was a great bit uh, – nice acting moment for, for Garrett – you, you kind of did see, like, Harry die a little inside because he was, like, the ultimate optimist at the beginning, right? You know, mm-hmm. and he was very enthusiastic, and, and all of a sudden he's like, I did everything right, mm-hmm. and we still didn't get into the wormhole. So, yeah, seeing Harry die a little bit inside, yeah, yeah that was that was, uh, that yeah. was powerful. Um, big question, though, at the end yeah. uh, that I want to leave you with, John. Yeah. So after the seven years mm-hmm. of learning that greed is good, you know, with the Ferengi, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So um, 
they're lackey, the Frengis, uh-huh. you know, they're, they're kind of like their, their henchmen. Uh, Kafar, yeah. Kafar is just going to just redistribute all that wealth that he's helped amass? <sighs> sure. It'll work out like that. It'll work out fine. Like I said, we'll come back in 20 years and see what happened. Did you hear the one about the Ferengi whose replicator stopped materializing every item in the middle? Everything was half off that day. We'll get right back to False Prophets after a word from this week's sponsor. You know, John, using the internet without ExpressVPN is kind of like having a first aid kit but not keeping it stocked up. I mean, that doesn't smart. make any Come sense, on. does no. it, right? No, not at all. I mean, most of the time you'll be fine, but like, what if you get into like this horrible accident and say like there's no Band-Aids or there's something not that, you know, that uh, you can't set a bone with or, or, or something that you need in an extreme emergency, but you don't have it with you. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. And you know, Norman, that is a very good analogy for, uh, oh, say, like signing yourself into a network, but not being prepared and not being protected when you do so. So uh, why would anyone, everyone, in my estimation, need a VPN? Uh, Well, it's very simply this, because every time you connect to an encrypted network, and it could be anywhere public, you go to your favorite restaurant, coffee shop, hotel, airport, wherever you are. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal private data. Just Mm -hmm. think about what that means, Uh, uh, passwords, financial details, uh, anything else. And it doesn't take much knowledge on the technical end for somebody to hack you. I mean, just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it. And your data is very valuable to that person. So hackers can make up to 1000 bucks per person selling your personal information on the dark web. How smart are 12 year olds nowadays to be able to do too this? smart, too yeah. smart, Norman, far too smart. Yeah. yeah. So this is why you need to use express VPN. Uh, I mean, obviously to thwart the smart 12 year olds, you know, but yes. you want to create an encrypted tunnel around your data, meaning that you want to create a secure encrypted area, a, an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So these, 12-year-old genius hackers can't steal your sensitive data. I mean, I know that 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 sounds like we're making light of it, but it is the truth. You know, you have very smart people, you know, and and very nefarious people trying to do this to you. You want to make sure that you're super secure, right? So any hacker with a supercomputer, it would take them over a billion years to be able to get past this kind of security with ExpressVPN. It's easy to use. That's the one thing that you want to be able to do with this kind of service. So fire up the app, click one button, and get protected, you know, with that billion years of super secure security. And it works on all your devices because we have multiple devices that we use on a daily basis, phones, laptops, tablets, and more. So you can stay secure wherever you are because we're always mobile. Now, we both like to use ExpressVPN on all of our devices for two very straightforward reasons. One is that it's secure, and two, that it is easy. You tap a button, you're connected, and you're good to go. And for all of us who live very mobile lives, you're doing your banking in one place, and you're signing in maybe to send a private message in another place, you want that data to be secure and private. So, 
Do what we do. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash mission log, where you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash mission log. Norman, some of you brought up in the last segment that I felt like needed a little more attention because there are so many what ifs around this guy and that's Kafar the mm-hmm. uh, the sort of servant that the sages had uh, taken under their wing and I feel like we just didn't get enough of him in this episode and he made me so interested I, I feel uh, for the short time that he is there on screen that they do make good use of him. So think about this. Think about his arc in this story. When we first meet him, he is completely subservient to Arador and Cole. As soon as he gets a taste of life without them, remember they beam up and like right. in point two yeah. seconds, he's on that chaise lounge just hanging out, taking in all mm-hmm. the uh, the treasury around him. And he is ready to experience all that luxury for himself. Then as soon as they are back, he's back to his old role. But but there's a hint of his independence, partly like by calling Cole the lesser sage. And by mm-hmm. the end, he has to be the one who rings the bell to usher in the next phase of the prophecy because he has been around them too long and he knows what it's like to have the spoils of power and profit. So I ask you – and our listeners, what becomes of this guy? Like, there's one way to look at it. We end the episode with him standing there handing out money because very wisely they had him go along with Neelix as, you know, the proxy to see that in action, to see the lesson of sharing, of, of mm-hmm. you know, benefiting someone else. So you kind of have to have somebody like him aware of that or or else it doesn't make sense at all to see that again at the end. But there he is handing that stuff out. How much time goes by? Can these people live without their quote-unquote gods to show them what to do? And do they at some point hand all of that out and then get greedy again when somebody feels like they don't have enough? I mean I I like that that you brought him up because I think that he is the kind of character that would be kind of like our proxy as the audience where we would see mm-hmm. a character who has in the seven years that, and Cole said that, you know, it's been seven years of profit and it's been great. You know, he said that closer towards the end. So we understand that the timeline, um, at least from when Eridor and Cole landed on this planet has been at least seven years. So there's been an yeah. established, uh, there's been an established kind of like manipulation of like this planet, these people, and especially Kafar, right? So, what happens when, when when that influence has has been removed? You know, has he been conditioned in a way where he's going to continue that, or um, in in the way that we see him as, again as our stand-in uh, for the audience? We don't really see kind of like uh, I guess the pushback. You know, where mm-hmm. we see that he's been abused, where he wants to push back, where he gets to actually enjoy the Shays Lounge, where he has the venom in, him, <laughs> in calling them like the lesser sages. We don't see kind of like those moments where. He's been slighted where he feels like he is in he has been wronged, you know, in the model of this yeah. kind of like this, this this capitalistic exploitative exploitative model, you know, that the Ferengi like build their society upon. And it would have been great. And I think that it would have resolved earnestly and honestly if 
that happened to him throughout the course of the episode where he would do all these things for Cole and Eriador and he would get like kicked mm-hmm. or beaten or chastised. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. his comeuppance is, uh, ha- has been kind of like, uh, you know, um, resolved in, I'm going to disperse all these funds to help my people who I've also helped subjugate. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it, it got a, it's still one of these great what ifs, like what happens to that guy? What happens to this whole culture now that they apparently were prospering in one way before the Fringe showed up? And in seven short years, the Fringe made a mess of that. Can they go back to their pre-Fringe days? Or are they so wrapped up in their mythology that it prevents them from being able to take proper steps forward and that my friend that is where i want to get to another point that you brought up in the Mm -hmm. last segment and that is about janeway's reaction to what erador tells her about the gods right what happens to a people when they lose their gods despair fear confusion now you uh you reacted to her reaction and uh, mm-hmm. Kate is just like the master of reactions. You don't need to put words in her mouth to be able to feel what she's feeling. And it's all very genuine and, and uh, absolutely true to the reality of the moment. I'm going to step in here, though, and say that I'm surprised that Janeway was swayed by that argument. And I, I wanted a little pushback from someone. Maybe Tuvok, maybe someone else. More pushback, more discussion, more exploration by showing instead of telling. I feel like that is not a great argument for why people need an authoritative figure like a quote-unquote god. And uh, you can replace these Ferengi with whatever version of that that you want. Because the premise there is that people... And I, I think it's no mistake that the Tikarians, uh don't have makeup. They're human. <laughs> They're, I mean, they really are as close to human as anybody we have come across in the Delta Quadrant. Now, I, uh, partly that is a production choice because you do have extensive makeup on the Ferengi and then a third Ferengi when you throw Neelix in there. So you got to minimize what you do with the others. But they are very straightforward, just pre-industrial humans, very relatable on that level. And there's a message that comes with that if there's no pushback that says people are – too bad-natured, they're too incompetent, they're too non-self-sufficient, that if you take away this authority in the form of either a, a promise of reward or fear of punishment, that they won't know what to do for themselves. They won't be able to create a society for themselves. When we already know that they had a flourishing society up until seven years ago. So even given that literal example right there, that we know what these people came from and where they are now, I'm really surprised that Janeway would take that response to say, oh, yeah, if you you take away their gods, it's just going to be total chaos, so you can't do that. I, I kind of want to see the version of this where you just take away the gods. 
Is it possible that Janeway at that time was remembering what Tuvok reminded her of earlier in the briefing room where Mm. he said, Captain, I must remind you that the Ferengi are not members of the Federation. They are not bound by the Prime Directive, nor would it seem that the Prime Directive would allow us to interfere, keyword interfere, with the internal affairs Mm -hmm. of this society as much as we may disapprove of what the Ferengi are doing. So I see these two scenes kind of kind of complementing each other because there is such a thing as maybe the Ferengi prime directive that we're not looking at. And mm. I know that, that Captain Janeway said that it's our fault because of the episode, the price in the next generation, that we are responsible for the Ferengi being here in the Delta Quadrant. That's yeah. a really interesting way of loopholing the logic of that, even to the point where Tuvok's like, you know, that's a dazzling display of the logic, Captain. You know, I don't have nothing <laughs> else to say to that. But yeah. at the same time, though, there is something about the Ferengi already establishing this belief system in the society where even Janeway's like, well, if I did, if I enforced the Federation policy to correct this mistake that we created after the fact, what do I do to the society in general? Right? So mm. there's a power vacuum that happens when you know you remove this kind of mechanism you know, from a society. Again, going back to Kafar, like if you remove all of this, what happens to somebody like him who has been indoctrinated by this Ferengi capitalist cultural model? So it all kind of like works on each other. If you remove the Ferengi's prime directive of how they created the society, what do you do to the people when that power vacuum has been removed? Ergo, what happens to somebody like Kafar who has been trained to act a certain way? And if you don't rehabilitate somebody like that, He's only going yeah. to manifest the Ferengi's model in his own way, which we don't get a chance to see. And I love the fact that you bring up the Sigma Ayotians from a piece of the action because it's exactly <laughs> what, yeah. what happened or what we think yeah. would happen, right? But but is that the case? Are, are they so malleable that in only seven years, because uh, it, it, it at least appears that the people on that planet live, you know, at least – what we would consider to late middle age, if not beyond, would they not go back to what they had learned before? Or do they, you know, they take a little while and sit there waiting at the temple until nobody shows up and realize they have to get on with their lives. So I I think this episode does a good job of laying the groundwork by showing these better behaviors, like showing Neelix come out with the money and hand it out. Kafar has to be there to see that. He has to see that it has an effect on people. So, yeah, I mean, those those pieces of the groundwork are laid to make that transition smoother, even if it wasn't part of the original plan. <laughs> you know, they mm. they do manage to go through with it. And I do get what you're saying that, yeah, Janeway may have been having some second thoughts about that conversation that she had with Tuvok because he does raise a good point. I guess, you know, this is sort of jumping ahead to my final thoughts in the episode. I, I guess <gasps> I can't. No. I know. I know. I'm jumping our, our own timeline. But I I can't help but hold this episode up as kind of the funhouse mirror version of Who Watches the Watchers because Mm -hmm. that's an episode where, okay, we've already screwed up the non-interference and we've also realized the path that these proto-Vulcans, as they call them, are – 
pretty much laying out for themselves. And it takes a guy like Picard to say at the very end, like, no, I've I've got to say to them that I'm not a god and there's not a supernatural thing for you to answer to. You got to figure it out on your own. And I know that this story isn't going to tell that story the same way, but I was kind of waiting for that moment. I think the issue here is how how much of this can Janeway unravel? I mean, I know seven years mm. is a very short period, and I, I, I mm. you know, there is a fun kind of anecdotal way of looking at it: seven fat years, seven lean years. That's the way that kind of call described, mm. like the amount mm-hmm. of profits that they amassed. But in seven years, and the amount of technology that they brought, you know, the replicator, that's magic. And I really need to bring up yeah. Arthur C. Clarke's third law. Right. The third law of. Yes. Uh, OK. So um, before I get way ahead of myself, I want to make sure that I, I, I lay this out exactly the way I wrote this down. So Chakotay says yeah. to Janeway earlier on what they've done, the Ferengi, is that they've co-opted the lo- local mythology by using advanced technology like the replicator to convince the people that they're the two sages spoken of in the poem. So this references Arthur C. Clarke's third law, and I'm citing the memory alpha definition of this, which is essentially the Wikipedia and the general definition of this. Arthur C. Clarke's third law was a philosophical concept devised by the human author Arthur C. Clarke in the 20th century. In it, Clarke proposed that, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic, end quote. So the concept was debated by both scientists and theologians. At some point, the law was reinterpreted to indicate the indistinguishability of advanced extraterrestrial life from God. So here, you know, in this model, Janeway is against, she's working against seven years of an established magic, i.e. religion based on that magic, that the Ferengi are indistinguishable from gods, Mm -hmm. which means Mm -hmm. that, okay— how do I how do I remove that without harming the society? How do I remove the belief system of these gods, right, based on this technology? And does she have the right to do that based on do I respect the actual prime directive? Right? <laughs> the prime directive of what Janeway's working against is making sure that she doesn't interfere with the development of a non-warp capable society. Is that the case here? You know, what kind of hairs are we splitting in this episode, I guess, is the big question. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the the workaround is always to sleep well at night, reminding herself that the Ferengi landed there by our interaction, by the Federation interaction, by this sort of artificial construct, which is they're flying a shuttle through a wormhole and just show up there and find the nearest inhabitable planet that they can exploit. That is, it, if, I, I would say this, if the Takarians had understood that from the beginning, that is probably not a path that they would have chosen for themselves. But the problem is, you don't have a moment, you don't have a scene in this episode like you have in a lot of other Star Trek, where the captain or somebody from Voyager reveals themselves to one of the locals for who they really are, to say, no, here's what's going on. Now we're going to put the power back in your hands to choose what your future is. And I, I think that that option is firmly on the table because the Ferengi have already screwed it up. Not only have they screwed it up just by being there, but they have upended the economy of this place and made these people into essentially slaves. 
You know, anything that they do is just purely for the profit of the Fringe, which is kind of hilarious because if you think about it, then the Fringe can't go anywhere other than that planet. <laughs> like it doesn't help them at all that they they have nowhere else to go with their wealth. But that just shows you what drives them. They just it's the pursuit of wealth, even with no end in sight. Let the Ferengi be gods, or remove the gods. There's a third option no one considered. Beam down a bunch of pairs of crocs and become the new gods. All right, well, we made it. There's only one last thing to do, and that is to, uh, you know, pay the holy sages and (laughs) (laughs) make our way out of the temple. Uh, So end of false prophets. And uh, now is the point where we decide if the episode holds up and if we walked away with any messages, morals, or meanings from it. So Norman, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Does the episode hold up for you? Well, I have a question for your question, John, to start off with. And and, and maybe just to see kind of like the, the conversation in general out there. So the question is, are Ferengi episodes a contractual obligation in developing content for a series? Because I really can't come up with any other reason why this episode would have taken up, say, a slot in a series in writing and production resources. Because, you know, am I tipping my hand? Um, I No, you, you know what? The, the reason is Ferengi are popular. Yeah. And, and that, that's it. You know, we're overlapping here with, what, season four of DS9, and Ferengi are, are popular. They, they, they say Star Trek, mm-hmm. so that's what's happening here in 1996, yeah. is you're, just, you're kind of reminding the audience, like, oh, hey, don't, don't worry about all those, you know, nondescript Delta Quadrant species that you're seeing don't worry about that we're, we're, we're still star trek we still have something that you recognize here's some ferengi i mean I, I guess that works if like everyone's watching all the series all at once but maybe if people are just watching voyager for voyager then that might need a little bit mm-hmm. more explaining as you just said so using the scene with neelix as the grand proxy as my big example for a big yeah. issue that i have with science fiction in general i think the one huge pill I always have to swallow with episodes like this is believing that, say, communications, and especially with Voyager's technology and with the universal translator, that that's the, you know, the, the com badge, that, that everyone yeah. can still, like, understand and speak the same language as the natives, or in this case, the Ferengi, no matter, right. say, how primitive, like, language may be. Because there's this like yeah. wholesale admission or acceptance that the communicator is broadcasting the translated conversations. But like if you were looking at it, say, from today's point of view, like the lip syncing the lip syncing doesn't work. The conversation may not be completely right. translated as right. needed. And that's something that, yeah, maybe that's, you know, a, a point of contention as a, as a critique. But once you swallow that, once you say like, okay, you know what, Norm, just get over yourself. This is the 1990s. This is the way Star Trek is. Deal with it. You know, move on. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I will. I'll deal with it and I'll move on. But I have to make that point. 
I have to make that point because but but here's the thing but you're bringing up an interesting point because in Star Trek they created this idea to say like oh okay well it, it, you know in TOS the universal translator was this thing that looked like oh it looked like a Graflex flash rod, right, you know, right. it, it essentially looked like that. And But now we're saying, like, no, 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 it's way smoother and more discreet than that, and it's part of the comm badge. But when you invent the technology like that and say, here's how it works, then an episode like this rolls along and you're like, oh, wait a minute, if I think about that for even half a second, that'll take me out yeah. of it. And so that's kind yeah, of like the reality of it, saying. but at the same time, though, maybe that's kind of like the the era that we were living in, in the 1990s with science fiction. Yeah. You know, all that aside, I do give this episode credit for, say, returning the Ferengi to their truest form, like Brunt in the FCA, you know, where mm. their motivations are, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they come by honestly with the Ferengi culture, you know, and, and it's not the extremists of like the um, – like characters like Quark and Rom and Nog and Moogie, you know, where they are characters that have developed over time. And, you know, we've kind of like understood like their motivations, but how they've changed, you know, throughout the course of the series. Well, maybe the exception of the Grand Nagus, but, you know, yeah. that's that was because of Moogie's, you know, influences, you know, to, long story short, right? The Ferengi are a very obvious storytelling tool. You know, they're yeah. they have one note. They're not necessarily inspired as a narrative device. But saying that, I do think that they were well-written in this episode. They're very consistent in who they are. We understand who the Ferengi are as a culture, and they are representative and reflective of how they were introduced in, like, say, the next generation developed over the course of time, and then Deep Space Nine, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really kind of like the most positive thing that I can say about this episode is that they wrote the Ferengi consistently. This episode doesn't hold up for me because my big critique about this episode is that it's uninspired. It's uninspired (laughs) and, 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 you know, and in a sense, uninspiring because it doesn't really do anything to inform us as an audience about anything different about what could have been done in the Delta quadrant with maybe other species who are just, maybe similar or worse than the Ferengi. So uninspiring should never be a word associated with the brand of Star Trek in any way. That's my biggest issue with this episode, John. Yeah. How about you? Okay. All right. I'm going to take up some slightly different positions from you here, though, and that, that, that's why we do this is because we, we want to have this uh, free flow of ideas here. To me, I'm partly looking at this episode through the lens of what I think they wanted to accomplish versus what they did accomplish. And the problem is I feel like anybody who has been watching Star Trek for long enough and exposed to Ferengi long enough and exposed to Star Trek's kind of overall history long enough, you're also watching it with, okay, what did they think they were doing by trying to tell the story versus what they actually finished with and put on screen for us to see? So to me, I I think that there's something nice about seeing Star Trek try, maybe not always succeed here, but try to serve up the story that is a straight up parable and built upon, see, I I like building upon this little footnote in a prior Star Mm -hmm. Trek episode, because I don't have to have seen that episode in order to get what's going on here. 
It helps if I know who the Ferengi are. Helps if I know their motivating factors, you know. But that, so that's the kind of universe building that I do like. That's not shoehorning in like every reference, every character, and making every action center around what fans have already seen. It's like it would have been a different thing if then we were name dropping. Okay, well, Captain Picard did this, and then this happened. Like, no, no, no. All you had to know is just the Enterprise, Wormhole, Ferengi. And I honestly, I had forgotten what episode that was from. I had to go look it up. I had to remember. I, I read through the uh, summary to make sure that I knew who fit where. Because, I, look, you tell me about the price, and I'm remembering Deanna's romance story, not the Ferengi story. So I appreciate that bit of universe building that, again, they're trying to do here. I also think that what they're trying to do here is have this parable that plays out almost like a Mark Twain kind of story. You know, you take people out of place and you have this weird usurping of power. You know, all drama is about changes in power status, and that's what you have going on here. And then some lessons to be found along the way as things get But you can still do that without the Ferengi. mm -hmm. That's my big issue, right? That's my big issue. Like, you know, you said it, they were a fan favorite. I get that. We're in the right place or where they're like overlapping a couple of different seasons. But there are so many different alien races that we've been exposed to in the Delta Quadrant in this story, you know, in this narrative that could have served that purpose and, and, you know, and fleshed out more of them like the Trabe. Well, I, look, I, I, you could tell that kind of story with anybody, and I think the trade would have been a, an inspired choice to do that with. Like, if we're going to have one last encounter with uh, – God, let's leave the Kazon behind. But if we're going to have one last encounter with kind of a legacy character in the Delta Quadrant, sure, you could do that with them. But what I'm saying is that if you're going to contrive a way to fit in a connection to prior Star Trek – This is the way that I want to see it happen. I want to see it be literally a footnote with a character who didn't even speak in the original episode. Uh, So in the price, Cole didn't even speak. Bring that idea back and create something new with them. And let's not have to then, you know, like I said, name check every other character or every other plot line in the past. We don't have to do it. We can just go then with what we've got here. It's just a reality that they're going to drop in Ferengi. They, they've dropped in other, you know, uh, I mean, heck, we, we dropped in humans from 1937 because we could. <laughs> so Star Trek will do that from time to time. I would rather see it done like this than other ways, you know. But he, here's where it starts to go off the rails for me. I, I actually don't mind how we get into the story. But once we're there, I feel like the script doesn't know what to do with itself. Is it going to be broad comedy? Is it going to be satire about faith and and the religious convictions of these people? Are we going to get into the nitty-gritty with some lessons to be shared with the audience? I, I don't think we're getting any of that. It, it's just sort of all over the map about what is trying to fit into the story. And... This one is Voyager trying to, like I said, it's trying to do Who Watches the Watchers, but falling short because it's the Funhouse Mirror version of that story. And it also falls into that Gilligan's Island trope again about being so close at the end, but then we have to contrive a way for the guest stars to get home, but leave our regulars stranded. 
that that's just the way those stories always work. So, and look, I also I feel bad about saying this because I am a fan of Leslie Jordan, but I think our two Ferengi guest stars aren't particularly strong. So you've mentioned Brunt a couple mm-hmm. of times here, and that's what I think of. You know, I, I remember the Ferengi actors who really stand out, Armin and Jeffrey Combs and Max and Wally Shawn. And, uh, you know, those are the ones who you remember. And when this episode came out, we've had a lot of them on DS9 already. I will be hard-pressed to remember specifically who these two are. Other than that, kind of generically speaking, okay, Leslie Jordan played a Ferengi once. So I think it only holds up as an excuse to get some Ferengi into Voyager. And the pretense for doing it, I I like that footnote from TNG, but I wish that the episode took everything to the next level and said, okay, if that's going to be our premise, now we're really going to use some teeth and – Tell a group I'm going to add Aaron uh, Aaron Eisenberg in there before you get emails. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying, yeah, you know. Oh my god, of course, yeah, I know, course, just, of course. Yes. We do notes. Sometimes yeah. we miss things. Yes, but I don't want you <laughs> to get the do. emails yeah. of, of of you know not adding yes. Aaron Eisenberg to the yeah. to the list. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, it's just yeah. outstanding, outstanding. And, and so that's where I come up short with this episode. It's like, okay, if we're going to do something that we're going that far out of the way to try to be clever about fitting in Ferengi and doing this story like is there really a point is there a moral meaning message and that's the problem that I come up with is that I wanted there to be a moral meaning message but I'm not really sure that there is because I'm not really sure that the episode has the teeth to grab onto it and really chew on something I wanted Janeway to struggle with the premise of what would happen if she took the gods away from these people. And I wanted there to be some part of the Tekarians grappling with what happened. But they're just kind of played for comedic effect. Like they're they're really they're willing to just follow the next part of the poem of the sages wherever it takes them. And they they really have no agency beyond that. I I just I I wanted there to be something else happening in this episode that made me think like, oh wow. All right. Now they've really come across a conundrum that they can't solve easily. But instead, the solution is all tech-the-tech solutions. It stops being about the philosophy of the situation they're in. And it just becomes the mechanics of got to get rid of these Ferengi, got to keep Voyager stranded in the Delta Quadrant. I think there are interesting moments along the way, but they're always just sort of a step behind actually approaching – the important topics that they could have dealt with here. So we end up with a relatively light comedy Ferengi episode, and that's about it. And if you found more interesting morals, meanings, messages than I did, please well, lay them on here's me. Here's something interesting before I get into my into my response. Uh, one of the things that Janeway, I think, got really kind of like caught up with, and they didn't really develop it that well, she mm-hmm. did make a stance about it's our it's our responsibility as the Federation to to solve the issue with what happened with a Frankie because it's our problem. It's our fault that they're here. Okay, I don't have a mm-hmm. I don't have a disagreement with that. And, and and they and they you know they made that point specifically, but everything else after that had to do with 
how are we going to use the religion to manipulate the people in order to get the Ferengi off the planet, but in order for us to also satisfy our agenda as well? Because it's not like it's not <laughs> like that they're using their prime directive, the Starfleet the Starfleet prime directive, as a means to try and do the right and honorable thing by these people. They're doing it. They're using it as a way to get the Ferengi off the planet and try and fix the problem. But at the same time, though, there's the whole thing with Neelix at the end. Where it's like, well, look, we're going to interpret. Like the rest of the song that no one else is talking about with our technology being able to apply the reality of what this song is saying to these people and say, hey, look, there are those three starbursts. Boom. Technology can deliver those to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like they're doing it for the right reasons. Right. You know, they're not mm-hmm. doing it for the, yeah. well, if we actually apply the prime directive specifically to the situation, technically, we really shouldn't be interfering at all. But we have to. Because we mm-hmm. have to, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the have to right. is in quotes. Um, so yeah. that's kind of yeah. like – that's where I yeah. find my my biggest issue with like say resolving like Janeway's you know, motivations in this episode. So I don't really find a, a, a specific moral with this episode because I think just in order to find a really good moral in an episode, you actually have to have a really good episode to find that kind of – inspiration and i don't think that we have that here you know to be honest with you yes but i did find a meaning in it and i don't want to be completely like you know dismissive of this episode because i do think that there's one thing that this episode did really well and that's lean into the literal interpretation and layers of the actual title because we love playing the title game right so Mm -hmm. the meaning i found Mm -hmm. in this episode is the literal meaning in the analysis of the actual title I do appreciate the fact that this is probably perhaps the one episode that leans into the title on a variety of different levels. False prophets can be interpreted in a variety of different ways. Say, number one, the exploitation of profits by the Ferengi on these unsuspecting pre-industrialized people. False in the sense that they are not creating profits for the sake of developing and building their own culture at the dawn of their own industrial age. That's one interpretation of the title. Another one is understanding the homophonic differences, big word, I know, homophonic differences between (laughs) profit and profit, F-I-T or P-H-E-T, the Ferengi being the latter, false gods or sages that come from the sky who then literally and figuratively capitalized on my first point. Also, point three, an actual false profit as seen in Neelix's attempt to intimidate the Ferengi Mm. as the grand proxy. And lastly, Neelix as the holy pilgrim, yet another interpretation (laughs) of a false prophet. So if the the, the layers of the lies, lies, but in the title itself, which we rarely get a chance to actually see. So if there's a lesson to be learned or discussed about in, in this whole, you know, diatribe, it's the manipulation of religious beliefs and the constant mm. interpretation of those beliefs amongst prophets, false or otherwise, and how those powers are wielded to exploit entire populations of impressionable groups of people to the point of, how did Eriador put it? Oh, yeah. Eternal destitution. Not that! No, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, 
remember. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Maybe this Ferendi episode wasn't all that, but I still don't miss the Kazon. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.